BA5 subvariant can reinfect you with COVID within weeks. Two new COVID subvariants are sparking global concern. This new Ninja COVID variant is the most dangerous one yet, and the BA5 subvariant is fueling another COVID wave. Are all headlines that are at the top of search results related to COVID 19 as of the day I'm recording this. The original alpha variant of COVID, the one that spread globally beginning in early 2020, was already bad, especially since most of the world didn't have any antibodies that could fight it, and we didn't have vaccines or treatments to help us slow or deal with infections. The Delta variant was the first big breakout mutation of COVID, and it was more infectious but also far more dangerous and deadly than alpha. It hit those who caught it in more debilitating ways and seemed to be more likely to trigger long-term, so-called long-COVID symptoms that lasted for weeks or months or even years after the initial infection as well. Omicron hit much of the world in late 2021 and early 2022, surging outward from South Africa, where it was first detected and described, before rapidly and overwhelmingly infecting huge swaths of the global population. Previous waves were put to shame, as Omicron was moderately less deadly because it tended to set up shop higher in victims' airways, rather than deep in the lungs, like Delta. But that location, alongside other mutations, also made it vastly more transmissible, setting all sorts of new infection records and wiping the floor with many of the barriers, vaccine-related and societal, we'd managed to put into place leading up to that moment. BA5 is a new subvariant of COVID, a spin-off of Omicron. And like Omicron, it's more infectious than what came before. And like Omicron, it's upended what we thought we knew and could safely act upon in terms of putting preventative measures in place to tamp down future outbreaks. In essence, BA5 seems to have mutated sufficiently so that it no longer looks as much like Omicron or earlier COVID variants, especially in its outer spiky shell which is what most vaccines and antibodies currently target. That means antibodies that provided some immunity for those who had previously been infected no longer work as well, or in some cases at all, against BA5. And the same is true of vaccines. While they still seem to serve as a moderate bulwark against really extreme cases that necessitate hospitalization and lead to death, especially in folks who have had a total of three shots of an mRNA vaccine type, they're not as efficacious against BA5 because of how much it has changed since those antibodies were earned and vaccines developed. As a consequence, after a steep drop in infection numbers following Omicron, which lended a lot of people antibodies because of how many folks it infected globally all at once, those numbers are rising again, and it's understood that the numbers we have, which are rising, represent just a small portion of what's actually happening. And that's been the case throughout the pandemic because of blind spots in our observational apparatuses. But it's more the case now because much of the infrastructure that allowed us to track pandemic surges up to this point has disappeared as money has run out or been repurposed toward other ends. And as new at-home tests have become dominant, which is great in the sense that individuals can more easily and casually figure out if they're infected or not but less so in the sense that most of that testing data doesn't end up in collective databases, which is where those government and other aggregated numbers come from. 
all of which means the true rise in infection numbers is almost certainly many times what is showing up in those collective databases. But we have no way of knowing, at the moment at least, how big the current wave is compared to those official numbers. And though we can track things like hospitalizations and deaths relatively better than infections right now, that structure has always been weak too, in the sense that there's no universal means of attribution for ill health and fatalities from country to country, or even region to region within a given country. And that makes comparing and contrasting and acting upon the data we do have tricky. What I'd like to talk about today is another parallel wave of infections that have been throwing global health organizations and some local governments for a loop, in part because they're so different from COVID infections, and in part because the systems involved are already strained well beyond their normal bounds by all those ongoing COVID-related concerns and efforts. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Al Jazeera, and it's entitled, Monkeypox has likely spread undetected, quote, for some time, end quote, World Health Organization says. Monkeypox was first officially documented in 1970, during a period in which the world was trying to stamp out smallpox, and thus distributing vaccines for smallpox far and wide, and paying extra special close attention to smallpox-looking bumps on their patients. A nine-month-year-old boy living in what is today the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and a trio of children in Liberia and Sierra Leone were found to have this weird version of what seemed like a less transmissible smallpox virus, but which turned out to be a separate disease that was then found in hundreds of people, mostly in the DRC, and mostly in folks who had direct contact with animals, including wild animals like rats, prairie dogs, rabbits, dormice, squirrels, and monkeys. The disease was noted mostly as a research-worthy oddity, and not of any real concern in the 1980s, when we figured out that it was primarily relegated to Western and Central Africa, and in populations that had closer contact with infected animals, including their fecal matter, but also their meat, which could in turn be contaminated by fecal matter. In 2003, though, there was an outbreak of monkeypox in the United States that began in May and spread to 71 people by July that same year. This outbreak spread across six states, including Wisconsin, where the majority of the cases were found, Indiana, Illinois, Kansas, Missouri, and Ohio, and it was eventually determined that the outbreak began with a clutch of Gambian-pouched rats that were imported to the U.S. from Ghana alongside a bunch of other animals like porcupines and striped mice by an exotic animal company based out of Texas, which were then shipped to Illinois for distribution. While in Illinois, the rats spread their infections to a bunch of prairie dogs they were housed with while awaiting distribution, and direct contact with those prairie dogs is what led to all the human cases that were then identified and assessed in all those states. There were no deaths, but there were some pretty brutal symptoms experienced by people aged 1 to 51, and importantly, there was no evidence of human-to-human -human transmission during this outbreak. It was all prairie dog to human though human-to-human -human transmission had been reported in some very rare cases in Central and West Africa previously. Some folks, a total of 26 people who were in direct contact with those infected by monkeypox throughout the U.S. Midwest, were given smallpox vaccines out of an abundance of caution following the assessment of the situation. 
That decision was made because earlier, in 1988, a study found that the smallpox vaccine is about 85% protective against monkeypox, both in preventing infection and in reducing the severity of infections that do break through. This works because the two viruses are closely related, and though monkeypox is generally less virulent, less dangerous and deadly than smallpox, there are two main types of monkeypox, one that's most common in the Congo Basin, and which has become endemic in the DRC, and one that's more common in West Africa, which is less aggressive and dangerous. And it's that latter, less dangerous one, that caused the outbreak in the U.S. in 2003, but it seemed prudent to put that vaccine barrier into place just in case. In both types of monkeypox, those who are infected experience some of the typical sick-feeling symptoms that you might be familiar with, like headaches and muscle pain, fever, fatigue, chills, and swollen lymph glands. But they also get bumps that look a bit like chickenpox or measles, which typically show up behind their ears, on their neck, on their groin, below the jaw, and on their face. The face being a much more common target for these bumps early on, followed later by those other locations, and in some cases then on the palms of their hands and soles of their feet, which is part of what distinguishes these bumps from the more dangerous smallpox bumps. Some people also develop these bumps on their genitals, in their mouths, and about 20% of people who catch it develop lesions on their eyeballs as well. The bumps eventually fill with fluid, burst, scab over, and will sometimes then meld together into larger lesions as a consequence. These bumps and their associated rashes tend to last around 10 days, and the infection tends to last somewhere between 2 and 4 weeks in total, during which time the infected person is contagious. Their body, fluids, bits of lesion and skin, and in some cases contaminated objects, and possibly airborne droplets, all capable of carrying the disease from one person to another, though close bodily contact seems to be the most common human-to-human -human transmission route thus far. And again, even that transmission route has historically been rare, based on the available evidence. Nigeria experienced a significant monkeypox outbreak in 2017, which is ostensibly still ongoing, though the tracking of cases all but ceased due to COVID-related concerns beginning in 2020. And the UK saw its first confirmed human infection when someone from Nigeria who was infected traveled to Cornwall. This was followed by a few other cases, also seemingly originating from sources in Nigeria, though in one case, the infected person caught monkeypox while treating someone who had recently traveled from Nigeria and was being treated at a hospital in Blackpool. Periodic cases continue to pop up globally into the 20-teens, mostly in folks who traveled from a hotbed of infections to areas where monkeypox hadn't been seen before, or had only been seen rarely up to that point. In 2022, though, a cluster of cases was confirmed in the UK, many of which were tracked to an infected person who had recently traveled to Nigeria, but there were others that seemed to have resulted from local community spread of the disease. The first pocket of cases was confirmed on May 6th, and by May 18th, a whole slew of cases began to show up on government health service radars, which, as tends to be the case with all sorts of diseases, implies that the actual number of infections was higher than the growing number that was legible to these healthcare systems. That same month, we also began to see new cases popping up around the world, mostly but not exclusively in Europe. 
and that spread continues with more health services beginning to track cases in earnest in May and June of this year up till now. And the most recent numbers as of the day I'm recording this from July 8th, 2022 indicate that there are 9,069 confirmed cases globally spread across most countries with the capacity to look for, assess, and track such cases. And to repeat myself once more, that means the true number is likely a whole lot higher than 9,000-ish. In late June of this year, the World Health Organization decided not to label monkeypox a public health emergency of international concern, which is a designation that would push it to the forefront of international conversation and attract more resources for it. Instead, calling it an evolving health threat, which is a lower-tier designation but one that still justifies international attention of a heightened level, and tease it up for a potential upgrade to that other label at some point in the future, if changes to the global situation warrant it. Only three deaths have been confirmed so far as part of this global wave of monkeypox infections, one in Nigeria and two in the Central African Republic. But the disease can leave lifelong, literal scars on those who succumb to it and can lead to complications like sepsis, encephalitis, and a loss of vision due to lesions on the eyeball, none of which are ideal and all of which are extreme symptoms that sometimes pop up alongside the less extreme general sickness symptoms like pain and fever and the like and the necessity to basically avoid other human beings for up to a month while your body fights the disease. The World Health Organization did release a statement in which they called for urgent action to reduce global transmission of monkeypox, and it said that person-to-person -person transmission has almost certainly been going on for a while now, and we've only just noticed it because of the stigma that can be associated with diseases of this kind, which can be scarring and involve lesions across one's face and groin and other sensitive private areas and because it's become associated, in some people's minds at least, with men who have sex with men, a demographic group that seems to be at the center of most of this recent wave of infections, but which only tangentially is connected to monkeypox and its spread, more generally, because it's not sex, and it's not gay sex, that spreads monkeypox. It's close contact, and sex of any kind between any sorts of people usually involves close contact. That this wave seems to have been kicked off, or at the very least amplified, by an event that apparently had a lot of men who have sex with men in attendance then, was mostly just bad luck, as the same thing could have happened, but to different demographic groups, had someone with monkeypox attended a seminar in which people were hugging each other, or trying to earn their massage certifications instead. Anything with close skin-to-skin -skin contact, and a lot of people around to catch and carry the disease onward to other people with whom they will have skin-to-skin -skin contact. Part of the concern here, at the moment, within the World Health Organization and in other health-related organizations, is that monkeypox will come to be associated with certain behaviors, like men having sex with men, that are not fundamental to the disease at all. And people will thus maybe let their guard down, thinking they are not susceptible because they are not a man who has sex with a man. Or they may even denigrate those who catch the disease as having brought it upon themselves for sinning or otherwise defying cultural or even legal norms, as is the case in some parts of the world where the disease is currently spreading. If it becomes associated with a taboo subject, then it becomes taboo to talk about the disease, which reduces the likelihood that cases will be reported, people will get vaccinated and treated, and that those who have it will feel comfortable telling others so that they can avoid spreading it. 
This concern harkens back to the early days of the HIV-AIDS pandemic, which initially hit the global gay community hardest, but which was shown to be a disease of universal concern, rather than some kind of spiritual punishment for homosexuality, or a disease that could only be spread to folks who had a certain type of sex. At the moment, then, monkeypox is not a concern, like the COVID pandemic or even HIV-AIDS is a concern. It's a burgeoning issue, and one that the World Health Organization is saying we should watch and do our best to handle before it becomes a bigger issue. But right now it's mostly just alarming, as the transmission patterns seem to be different than those tracked in previous monkeypox outbreaks. And that could mean the virus itself has mutated in such a way that it's now more transmissible and possibly virulent than before. We don't know yet what we don't know in this regard, though, in part because we've never been great at tracking this in the past, because the healthcare systems where it's the biggest issue aren't super developed or well-funded, and cases have been sparse or non-existent in locations with better-funded healthcare systems, and because it's been a disease that's mostly a problem over there in the poorer world, and thus it doesn't get a lot of attention or funding from the wealthier world which is not an uncommon posture for international organizations and governments to take historically, but it is one that's being questioned more so today as a consequence of COVID and how it can be wiped out in one country only to have a surge in another country bring it right back to that place that successfully wiped it out a month or two later, but also because of how diseases like malaria, which were previously also an over-there disease for much of the wealthy world are spreading ever northward as the climate shifts and more regions are becoming survivable for carriers of such diseases every year. And consequently, more people are aware that disease-related problems that exist anywhere on the planet are our problems. Also worth noting here is that we are a bit more ignorant about monkeypox than we might usually be at this stage of this type of outbreak as a consequence of how drained our healthcare and medical resources have become over the course of the COVID pandemic. One of the main efforts meant to help keep this evolving health threat from becoming more than that, an established health threat, is the deployment of vaccines to areas experiencing outbreaks, including a recently announced package of 300,000 vaccines throughout the United States in the coming weeks, followed by more, totaling 1.6 million doses by the end of the year, most of those initial doses being divvied out to communities most at risk right now, including the LGBTQ community in major metropolitan areas. This vaccine has been around for a while and is labeled for use for both smallpox and monkeypox by the CDC. Most global health bodies at the moment are saying that the majority of people have nothing to worry about in terms of catching monkeypox a disease that they will soon, ostensibly at least, they keep saying they're going to, but they haven't yet, that they will soon rename in order to hopefully remove some of the remaining stigma attached to the disease about where it comes from and implications about how one catches it. But they're saying that most people don't have much to worry about when it comes to catching it, in part because it's still a relatively small outbreak compared to something like COVID, and in part because you can generally tell if there are lesions that something's up, in which case you should seek treatment if they are on you and avoid contact if they're on someone else. And you will almost certainly be okay either way, as this disease tends to go away all by itself within two to four weeks. But of course, it is ideal to avoid catching it. One, so that you don't spread it. And two, so that you are not at risk of those other potential side effects or long-term scarring or blindness. 
That said, there are concerns that the virus may become entrenched due to lackluster health measures and insufficient investment beyond the aforementioned vaccine orders, and that unreadiness of this kind could lead to a spiraling situation that allows monkeypox to spread more broadly throughout different communities before we fully understand why it is transmitting the way that it is human to human so easily. And because of that combined ignorance and lack of ability to fill in the blanks at least quickly, monkeypox could become more difficult to wipe out and even become more dangerous as it spreads and mutates. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Art of Buying Art, How to Evaluate and Buy Art Like a Professional Collector by Alan S. Bamberger. I've read several books on this topic recently, and this one was pretty good. This was one of the better ones that I read. There were a few that were not so great and probably would have made better blog posts than books. But this one was written by somebody who knows what he's talking about, and it does a good job of rounding out one's understanding of how the fine art industry works and how value is attributed to things that, beyond their aesthetic, which is very subjective, have no inherent value above and beyond the materials used to create them, like fine art. And a lot of this space, to many people, makes no sense. Some of it, even to people who know what they're talking about and work in this space, would argue that it makes little sense at times as well. But it's a fascinating world to learn more about, especially for someone like me, who, one, finds such industries fascinating, but two, also has a very, very small and inexpensive art collection, primarily of local artists that I'm trying to build out because I enjoy having art on my walls and supporting local artists when I'm able to do so. Having an understanding of where such a collection could go, conceivably, if I ever decided to tip it more in the direction of becoming a collection of assets rather than a collection of things that I enjoy having on my walls, is useful, I think. And it's also useful just to understand how the different prices are developed for folks operating within this space. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Art of Buying Art by Alan S. Bamberger. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other projects, including my other podcasts, of which there are three, I believe, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.